Welcome back to the Not For Profit Podcast. My name is Matt Williams. In this episode, I speak with Kerry Keeper about what it takes to make a change. This episode, I feel for Not For Profits will be very helpful in the showing that change can happen. Even if you are only one person, you can make a change. And it can show that this change is going to happen, but you have to be willing to do it and you have to be willing to put the effort in to make it happen. The three takeaways we take from this is, one is don't let the loss be fall by the wayside. Make sure you use that loss or the pain to fan the flame of that passion. Kerry delves a little bit more into this and we'll have a chat to her about that. The second takeaway is you're never alone. And that is absolutely true. There is always somebody out there for you. Kerry talks about this, about a Facebook post she put out and how much response she got from it was overwhelming. So we'll let Kerry have a chat to you about that. But we always remember, you're never alone. And the third point we take out of this episode is that if you want to make a change, and particularly in the government sector, which Kerry has had success in, is to make one change at a time. And we'll hear from Kerry about how that happened and how she's taken that one change, but it has snowballed and it has got bigger and change is happening all over the place. But it started with making one change. Let's go on over to Kerry and have a chat. The Not-for-Profit Podcast is brought to you by Platinum Audits for all your auditing needs. If you need any audits done or you need any information, please contact Platinum Audits. Welcome back to the Not For Profit Podcast. My name is Matt Williams, your host, and here we are speaking to a special guest this week, Kerry Keeper from SOS Fast. Welcome, Kerry. Thanks, Matt. It's good to see you. How you been? Really good. You yourself? Yeah, good. Thank you. Keeping busy. Just wanted to touch base with you today. I've had a little bit to do with SOS Fast and what you're doing out there in the in the not-for-profit sector and the not-for-profit world. I just wanted to share, if I can, get you to share a little bit about your history and what brought you to SOS Fast and what you know started SOS Fast and how that came about, if you can. Sure. So SOS Fast stands for Survivors of Suicide Fighting Against Suicide Toll. I started it after I lost my 21-year-old son, Chris, to suicide in September 2014. So I've lost five family members altogether, a brother and two sisters and a nephew. Yeah, but Chris five years ago. So all very different circumstances. But uh, with Chris, he had been turned away from our local hospital. I took him there on the 3rd of September when he was in a really bad way. He'd been known by them for some years, had been part of the mental health system. He had depression. This particular time that I took him to the hospital was the worst I'd ever seen him. He was in a really bad place and I basically begged the hospital to help me and to admit him into their uh, mental health facility and they sent us away with 10 Valium and told him to have a good sleep and he'd be fine tomorrow. So I brought him home to my house and um, he, he just basically sat for 10 days 
was in a really, really bad place and we had him on 24-hour suicide watch. On the 10th day, he said he wanted to go home and have a few drinks with some mates, which I took as a good thing. I thought, you know, maybe he's going to come out of this the other side. But uh, so that was on a Saturday and on the Sunday morning, um, I tried calling him. I was at work and I tried calling him and he didn't answer. So I thought, oh, he's probably still asleep after a late night with his mate. So lunchtime, I tried calling him again and he didn't answer. And I panicked and I called my husband and my son and I asked them to go and check on him for me because I was to pick him up on the way home from work to take him back home. Anyway, they went to check and uh, we kept calling each other back and forth, checking in to see if they'd seen him yet. And my youngest son, Jay, uh, who was a year younger than Chris, he actually, he actually found his brother. It was too late. He'd already passed away. So he um, left a video recording message and um, he basically was at a place where he just felt that you know, he couldn't get any help and the people that could help him um, sent him away. So he figured, well, you know, this is what my life's going to be like. I can't do it anymore. So anyway, from there, I was absolutely devastated, angry, whole heap of emotions all rolled into one. And I, um, I decided to put a post on Facebook, a photo of Chris and um, and a post about what had happened. And I posted it thinking just family and friends would see it, but it went viral and 7 million people around the world saw it. I got lots of um, private messages from people telling me their stories, very similar to ours. And then I started the SOS Fast Facebook page and uh, still today, uh, Five years later, there's still 33,000 people on there. I thought to myself, you know, it would be really criminal of me to have all of these people telling me their stories and, and so many like ours. It would be criminal if I didn't do something with it. So then I, up on my Facebook popped um, a link for change.org, online petitions. So I clicked on it and followed the instructions and I, I made up this petition addressed to the health minister, which was Cameron Dick at the time, shared it and shared it from my own Facebook page and the SOS Fast page and begged people to share it through their pages, which they did, and I got 67,000 signatures on that petition. So all of these numbers basically proved that, you know, this was a really, really serious problem. It wasn't just my family affected, it was so many others. So then I went down to uh, Capalabar and I met with my local member, Don Brown, and I took the petition with me and he printed it all out for me. I had thousands of pieces of paper with all of these, you know, names on it. So then he said to me that he would like for me to meet uh, Cameron Dick and he organised a meeting for me to go to Parliament House and meet with him personally. So about a week later, I put all those signatures, those pieces of paper in a box, and off I went to Parliament House. I met with Cameron Dick in this office full of, I felt very, very out of my comfort zone. I'd never been to Parliament House before. Certainly wasn't somebody to sit around talking to all of these fellows with their white collars and ties, and it was all still very raw. After losing Chris, it was only a matter of, probably, 
uh, I guess, maybe five months after his death. Wow. Yep. All this was happening. Yep. Did that, did that make you – sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but did that make you want – you said that you, you, did, you fell out of your comfort zone, but what kept you going? What kept you – did you feel a responsibility or was it just the, the pure drive in you to go, I need to get this, this something, I needed a bit to be addressed? Both, really. I, I did feel I had a responsibility to all of these people that were telling me their stories because at the time when I first lost Chris, you know, you go through this thing of you just feel so alone and nobody could possibly understand the pain that you're feeling. In the December, so I lost him in September, and in the December I had to go to the shops as you do and, you know, the people around and Christmas carols playing and everybody laughing and happy and, you know, it goes through your mind, you know, these people have got no idea. But then I was talking to people every single day that were messaging me, telling me, they knew how I was feeling. They'd been in the same position. They'd lost people or they were looking after somebody that was unwell and their frustration and their anger at the whole system. So I never, ever blamed the actual person that sent us away that night. I blamed the system and, and how it was failing and helping people with mental illness and just sending them away and their families being left to struggle when they just didn't know what to do. So the petition was basically, you know, I said that I wanted our accident emergency staff trained in looking after people like Chris that presented to ED, you know, with families that were desperate for their help and they just were being sent home and not given that help. So in the meeting, Cameron Dick said, you know, I'll look into it and I'll, I'll get back to you. I sort of kind of thought it was a bit of lip service really just to make me feel better and get rid of me. But even though he was very respectful on the day and everybody in that office was very respectful and they listened and, you know, you could hear a pin drop in the office, I basically had the floor and they just allowed me to, I mean, I sobbed and I cried and, you know, but I got it all out and they all listened and sure enough, probably a week or so later, I got a call from his office telling me that they had done some homework and accident emergency staff don't actually receive any training in looking after suicidal people and they said we think that we can do something about it we'll get back to you soon so again they got back to me probably a week later and told me they had employed a lady named Dr Rebecca Sewell and she would be heading up putting together this education program and that they would be in contact so then I got an email from Rebecca wanting to meet me and um I met up with her and they kept me in the loop the whole way. They they were fantastic. They asked for my input on everything they did and SRAM ED was born. So that's the name of the education. Still today, oh, they actually only had funding for like nine months, I believe, to begin with. And still to this day, four years later, that education is still running and there are still people trained every day in it. So all accident emergency staff members in Queensland are receiving that treatment and it's gone. Our current minister has actually extended that from just accident emergency staff to, you know, nursing staff and so on in wards as well, which is just fantastic. Wow, that is just, it's just awesome. It's, it's spine-tingling to know that one, one person with a drive and, and an experience and experience and thank you for sharing that because that's, 
you know, it's brought a tear to my eye to hear that. And I can still see the emotion on your face. And I, and that's, I love that about it. But to see that happen and to see it expanding must be a, a great feeling. Like I know it's just Queensland at the moment, but do, is there, are other states looking at it or have they looked at it or have they introduced something similar or did they have it and Queensland just didn't? I think, uh, I'm not sure whether other states actually had anything like it. I really don't know. I know there has been interest from other states. I've been to Canberra and I've spoken to politicians in Canberra about this very thing. You know, this isn't just a Queensland issue. It's worldwide. Um, Queensland does have the highest suicide rate in Australia. Um, We actually lose way more people to suicide than we do to car accidents. So, you know, this is something that isn't going away and it's something that's going to be an ongoing thing. It's not um, other stuff has come from the SRAM ED training as well. Yeah, so, but, I mean, I have met with a lot of very passionate people in this field and a lot of people that want to change things and make a difference. So it, it is a good feeling to know that, you know, at the end of the day, I guess you could say that Chris didn't die in vain, so I can't bring him back. But, you know, this is his legacy and the legacy of so many other people out there that, you know, that we've lost. And and that's what I bring it down to is that if what you've done through through your experience and what happened with Chris can save one person, that is a, Absolutely. A, a, it's a it's a win if he can save 100 people, 1,000 people, 100,000 people over the next 50 years, he's probably had a better touch on the world than most other people will ever have. That's right, and he's not even here. <laughs> you don't. Amazing. It is amazing, and I just yeah, I I really appreciate that. If you could go back, not bring Chris back, but go back after Chris passed and change something you did, would you do something a little bit differently or not? You know, I don't don't think so. Um, It still quite amazes me that it has gone where it's gone and people say, how did you do it? And I think a lot of it had to do with timing. A lot of it had to do with, I don't really know how I come across to other people, but I know that I'm a very passionate person and I know that I don't take no very well. That's okay, some don't. I've had a lot of people say to me, one person can't change something like this. I beg to differ because I started out as one person with this fire in my belly and this passion and this, you know, this need to try and change things, you know, as they were. And even though I was just one person along the way, so many others have followed and, you know, got involved and, everything from phone calls and messages and, you know, signing petitions and spurring me on to keep going. And I can't begin to tell you how incredibly, incredibly important that is because there have been times where I've thought to myself, you know, am I only doing this for my own benefit? You know what I mean? Is this just something that I have to do to make me feel better? And then I'll get a message from somebody telling me that, you know, what I'm doing is a great thing and, you know, I speak at you know, a, a university every year to second-year OT students and the other day after I'd spoken, I received a message from one of the students' mums telling me, you know, he'd messaged her and what a, an impact my talk had made on him and, you know, at the end of the day, once he and his classmates hit the floor as medical staff, 
hopefully they'll remember our story and, you know, they themselves will make big changes in this field. Absolutely. It, it, it takes one person to change the world. It takes a movement, but it takes one person to start that movement. And that's what you, that's how I see what you've done. And, and from my personal experience and my experience with you and your team, it is phenomenal. It is just, and to look at that and think this is four years ago now we've started that. I see that mental health area being bigger and bigger and, and more prevalent each year. I see you hear about it more and more. Is there more that uh, governments, associations, not-for-profits like yourself and as SOS Fast, is there more that we can be doing? Um, I believe so. I don't think it's something that we can ever stop working on. I think it's a case of I see quite a lot, you know, different organisations, not-for-profits, you know, the PHN and all that kind of thing. I see all of these different people all with exactly the same goal but all doing very different things. And I think sometimes it's a case of, and I guess a lot of it comes down to funding too, but I think we really need to pull together because, yes, one person can do can make change, but you get all of those people together and, my God, they can move mountains. You know, so I think I think it would be beneficial if rather than different organisations going off and doing their thing and quite often things being repeated and so on, I think if, if these organisations pull together more and work together on the common cause, I think it would be a whole lot, whole lot more beneficial in the end. How would how would you see that happening? How would if you could if you could make that happen? How could you how could you see it happen? Is it something that has to be driven from government, or is it something that has to be driven from the private sector and the NFPs? I think both. I think it's a case of you know I, people don't tend to take well to being told what to do. Sometimes it just takes planting a seed, or you know, and someone going, oh, you know, that's a good idea. Sometimes it doesn't go down well to be told or forced. You don't tend to have the, the I don't know, the, I don't even know how to, to say it. You, I think it, it has a better outcome if it's something that you want to do, not something you're made to do. You know what I mean? You have to yeah, have a passion so, about it. Yeah, that's right. And I think, um, like I said, there are amazing people working in this field and people that are frustrated and, you know, and they want change and, and so on. But it's like anything. It's a long, hard, slow process. And I just think if more of us can pull together and work together, I think it'll have a much, a much, and I think it's case too, instead of dozens and dozens of different things, pick a, a couple of very important things and work on them first, fix them first. Yep, absolutely. Which you, Which is what you did. You looked at, the the A and E training and and that was your focus because you didn't want anyone else going through what you went through That's when they right. presented a hospital and to to your credit no one will because of that because of one person because of you and I I, I applaud you for that if you could send a message to somebody out there who's in that similar boat like that has that one one goal not to change a and e but it has that one passion to in the in the mental health area what would be your advice to them my advice would be to think long and hard about what it is you want to change what you know what it is that your expectation i guess 
what is your expectation at? I've been told by a few people one of the reasons they believed that I was successful in getting to meet with the minister and, you know, getting this to happen was a lot of people tend to go to government with, you know, lists and lists and lists of all the things that are wrong and all the things that need to be fixed and all the changes that need to be made and they basically look at and go, that's impossible and it gets, you know, they don't even look at it. It's too hard. But if you can come up with one thing, it doesn't matter how big it is, just one really important thing and you work on that, you are more likely to have people take notice because it's doable. You know, they can work on one thing. You can't work on 40 or 50 different things. We get that there's lots of different issues and that's lots of different problems, but you need to fix one thing at a time. So my advice would be, you know, think about what it is that desperately needs to be fixed, what you believe or what can be worked on and what's achievable and set about doing that. Yeah, and then like you happened with yours, it went further. So your one area was A&E, emergency departments being trained. Now it's all areas being trained. So that one thing has now become bigger than just A&E and that's, can, that's how it can happen. That's right. It has a snowball effect. Absolutely. Kerry, if people want to reach out to you, we're just about run out of time. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best place to get in contact with you? It's through Facebook? Yes, through Facebook, the SOS Fast page. You can actually um, message me through that and I will get back to you. I actually message people back personally. It's just me. So, yep, through the SOS Fast page. Yeah, that's probably the best way. I check it many, many, many times a day. Yeah, no, you're, and I part of that page as well. So, and from my personal experience and and how we connected, I just want to say thank you for what you've done in the in the mental health area and the not for profit area to to make the changes you have. Thank you so much. And thank you for all of your help, Matt. You've been an absolute legend. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's 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 great to be part of a a, a really good team. Thank you. Thanks, Heath. <laughs>